Chapter Eleven of Peccavi by E. W. Horning. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Labor of Hercules. All the church had not been burned to the ground. West of the porch, itself not hopelessly destroyed, stood thirteen feet of sound south wall, blackened on the inside, calcined in the upper courses, but plumb and firm as far as it went. A corresponding portion of the north wall, the sixteen-foot strip west of the window almost opposite the porch, stood equally rigid and erect. And thus supported on either side, the entire west end rose practically intact, without a missing or ruined stone. The window was still truly bisected by its single mullion. Neither head nor tracery had given the fraction of an inch. Only the mangled ledge, with here and there a fragment of smoked glass adhering, would have told of a fire to one led blindfold under the west window, and there given his first view of the church. But that was the one good wall and real exception to a rule of utter ruin. The rest of the original building was either raised already or else unfit to stand. The embryonic transepts were not quite demolished, but they had never been many feet above ground. Sections of wall still stood where there were no windows to weaken them, but east of the porch nothing stood firm. Worst of all was the east end, from which the chancel walls had been burnt away on either side. It stood as though balanced with an alarming outward list. One mullion of the great window had gone by the sill, the other was cracked and crooked, as if supporting the entire weight of the gable overhead, and it looked as though a push would send the tottering fabric flat. Black ruin lay thick and deep within. To peep in was to see an ashpit through a microscope. The remnants of the slate and timber roof lay uppermost. Tie beams, corbels, king posts, ridge, struts, wall plates, pole plates, rafters principal and common, joists, battens, laths and fillets, half burned and black as the pit, save where some spilled sheet lead shone in the sun, spread a common pall over nave and chancel, aisle and pews. It was as a midnight sea frozen in mid-storm, the twisted lectern alone rising salient like a mast. Slates lay in shallow heaps as though dealt from a pack, and certain pages, brown and brittle at the edges, which the wind had torn from the burnt Bible before Carlton rescued the remains, still fluttered in the crannies when the wind wet its rounds. And the hum of bees was in the air, but there had been great distress among the sparrows, and one heard more of the rectory cocks and hens. Upon this desolate and dead spot, in the heart of the warm, live country, Robert Carlton stood looking within a few minutes of his exit from the hall. But he did not stand looking long. He had changed into flannels at top speed, and there was still more change in the man. His eye glowed with a grim decision which lightened without dispelling the settled sadness of the face. Passionate aspiration had cooled and hardened into dogged and defiant resolve, and there was an end to all compunction and self-questioning suspense. Carlton knew exactly what he was going to do. He had known where to begin since the day before yesterday. He wore neither coat nor waistcoat. His sleeves were rolled up. He had a crowbar in one hand and a heavy hammer in the other. 
he began immediately on the thirteen feet of good wall to the left of the porch he had tested this wall on saturday the upper courses were loose and crumbling the sooner they went the better carlton climbed upon the wall and sitting astride where it was firmest began working off the loose stones one by one with the crowbar iron would ring on iron twice or thrice and then a twist of the bar sent the charred stone tumbling it was easy work but the position was awkward and carlton soon went for a ladder on the way he was surprised to find that he was already drenched with perspiration and rather hungry but the next hour tired him more or rather the time that seemed an hour to him for it afterwards turned out to be three hours by the watch that he had left indoors only the topmost course or the stones on which the red-hot eaves had rested lent themselves to off-hand treatment they had been burnt to cinders the mortar binding them to a powder it needed but a wrench to dislodge each one but the next few courses were a different matter half the stones were too loose to leave too good to chip in the removal carlton worked upon them with the cold chisel first and crowbar next and finally with his naked fingers removing the stones with immense care and very deliberately dropping each into its own bed in the long grass outside at last the little strip of wall was left without an unsound member from serrated crest to plinth not a stone that shook or shifted at a conscientious push and the workman took his eyes from his work but he did not peer through the trees in search of other eyes for he was not thinking of himself or of his work from a spectacular point of view he merely saw that the sun had travelled the church from end to end while he had been busy and suddenly he found himself sinking for want of food and unable to stand upright without intolerable pain but he was back within half an hour and remained at work upon the sixteen-foot strip opposite till after sunset "'But it hasn't been anything like a full day, old dog,' said Carlton, as they crept up to bed between eight and nine, and he set his seven-and-sixpenny alarm at four o'clock. Next forenoon the sixteen-foot strip was done within its turn, no infirm stone left standing upon another, scraped and repointed with the uninjured pieces replaced in fresh mortar, and an entirely new top course, these two short walls would be worthy of the gallant west end to which they acted as buttresses its wounds were not skin deep thanks to the west wind which had driven the flames the other way it looked as though a sponge would cleanse it and carlton sighed as he turned his back upon the one good wall elsewhere as has been said there were fragments fit to use again but not to remain as they were it cost Carton a couple of days to take these to pieces, laying the good stones carefully in the grass, as his practice had been hitherto. The fourth day, however, he tried a change of labour to ease his aching limbs, and went round and round with a barrow, picking the sound stones from the grass and stacking them near the shed. Next morning he fought his way into the chancel and stood chin-deep in the wreckage, contemplating the leaning east end and all this time no soul had come near him through the trees he had indeed heard whispers that were not of the trees but he had never thrown more than a glance in their direction and the green screen was still charitably thick 
The East End must come down sooner or later, therefore sooner. Carlton was no engineer, but he was a man with a distinct turn for mechanics, had used a lathe as a lad, and taught his boys friendly how to use it in their turn, had picked up much from Tom Ivy, and was himself blessed with sound instincts concerning application and control of power. Here was a tottering wall to come down altogether. It was too insecure to pull to pieces. The problem was to get it down with as little damage and as little danger as possible. One man could do it, Carlton thought, but not without considerable risk of a broken head at least. If he could but make sure of the whole wall falling in the one outward direction. He revolved about it mentally and on his feet till he became angry with himself for the loss of time, ceased to speculate, and went to work in desperation. He would trust to luck. He despised himself for having studied a risk so small. He had done so out of no absurd consideration for his own skin, but entirely from the depth and strength of his artistic impulse to do a thing properly or not at all. Even now he had to prepare the ground, he had to clear the chancel enough to give himself free play. There he found a scaffolding pole which had not been used, and tilted at a tree for practice. The pole was unmanageable from its length. He sawed it shorter. It was still too unwieldy to use amid the debris. He shortened it until he had a battering ram some eighteen feet long. But all these preliminaries had taken unimagined hours, and again Carlton felt sick with hunger before he thought of food, and unequal to further effort until he had some. So he turned a breaking but reluctant back upon the church and went indoors remembering everything on the way and loathing himself afresh. At his work he was beginning to forget. Thus far this outcast had subsisted chiefly on eggs. He beat up a couple now and tossed the stuff off with a little wine and water. Then he fell upon a box of biscuits, but threw the dog as many as he munched himself, striding up and down the while and for all his fatigue. The room was the one in which he had studied his own physiognomy. It might have been any other. He had no eyes for himself today, and not many thoughts, for in the midst of his contrition for forgetting, he had forgotten again. His mind escaped to the chancel, the flesh followed in a few minutes, having eaten and rested on its legs. The dog bounded ahead and presently announced an intruder at the top of its voice. Carlton quickened his pace, frowning at the thought of interruption. He was on the spot before curiosity had tempered his annoyance, and there, among the ruins, stood Sir Wilton Gleed, not frowning at all, but forcing a smile behind his cigar. "'How long is this tomfoolery to go on?' said he. Carlton stood looking at him for some seconds, then he picked up his pole without replying. "'You'd better stand to one side,' was all he said. "'Kennel up, Glenn.' "'Going to do something desperate?' "'The further you get away from me, the safer you'll be.' But he did not look round as he spoke, and Sir Wilton gripped his stick without occasion. Carlton's blood was boiling none the less. The enemy had surprised him at his worst. He was for the first time attempting single-handed the work of several men, and he might be going about it in a very ridiculous way. He could not tell till he tried, and it was one thing to experiment in private, 
but quite another to court open discomfiture of the very nature which would most delight the looker-on. And the man was worn out with hard and unaccustomed labour, dyspeptic from evil feeding, nervous and irritable from both causes combined. Sir Wilton Gleed could hardly have chosen a worse moment for renewing the duel. In Carlton the longing to do something violent suddenly outweighed his desire to raise the east end of the church. He poised his pole and fixed both eyes on the one remaining mullion of the east window. If the mullion went, he still thought that the whole fabric should collapse, forgetting the inherent independence of arches, and his mind dwelt wistfully on the effect of the crash upon Sir Wilton Gleed. But his aim was not the less accurate, nor did his anxiety hinder him from utilizing every muscle in his body at the ideal moment. The end of the ram smote the mullion fairly and powerfully, where it was already cracked. The mullion flew asunder. A quatrefoil shifted a little, robbed of its support. The whole wall seemed to shudder, but that was all. "'You remind me of Don Quixote,' said Sir Wilton's voice. Carlton spun round. The pole trailed behind him from his right hand. He took fresh hold of it, lower down, and there was no mistaking his look. "'You go about your business,' said he, fiercely. "'I've come about it,' was the bland reply. "'I'm not trespassing, either. Don't put yourself in the wrong. Remember your advice, and let's have a civil answer to a civil question. My good friend, what do you think you're trying to do?' The artificial geniality of address, the settled malice underneath, the tone that people take with a willful child, all galled and goaded the tired man beyond endurance. "'You had better go,' he said. "'Do you really propose to rebuild the church with your own ten fingers?' inquired Sir Wilton, not to be daunted by a threat. "'You proposed it. I mean to do it.' Sir Wilton shook his head with a venomous smile. "'Oh, no, you don't. You mean to pretend to try.' You mean to pose. Carlton flung the pole from him and strode forward, swinging open hands. I'm not going to talk to you, he said, and you shan't make me strike you, but if you don't go out, you'll be put out, Sir Wilton. Gleed smiled again. His collar was seized. He smiled no more, but lashed out with his stick. The stick was wrenched away from him. It whistled in the air and Robert Carlton had his enemy at his mercy, still held by the collar, in the place where he had preached goodwill to men. For he was much the taller of the two, and an old athlete, whereas the other was only an elderly sportsman. Carlton could have whipped him like a little dog. He did almost worse, released him without a cut, and handed him his stick without a word. And at that moment there came the crash, that would have saved this collision a few seconds before. Both men turned, rubbing their eyes. A cloud of yellow dust had filled them as it filled the chancel. The cloud dispersed, and wall and window were gone from sill to gable. What remained was nowhere higher than a man could reach. "'Now leave me in peace,' said Carlton, "'for I shall have my hands full, and don't trouble to come again, because I shan't listen to you. You've had two chances.' I promised to live away and only find the money and the men. You wouldn't have it. I invited you to build the church yourself. You wouldn't hear of that. 
No, you would force me to do my duty, having tied my hands. You would take me at my word. I am taking you at yours. I should try fresh ground if I were you. Meanwhile, you could sue me for assault. Gleed had fully intended doing so, but the scornful suggestion killed the thought, and for once he had no last word, but his last look made amends. End of chapter 11